Hi folks, and welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is Fred Reno, your host. In this episode number 24, I interview Jake Bushing of Jake Bushing Wines in Hark Vineyards. Jake started his career in Virginia wine growing back in 1997 when he took a position at Jefferson Vineyards. He would then meet two individuals who would have an impact on his early career. Chris Hill, the noted viticulturalist, and Michael Shapps. He would later work at Horton, Keswick Vineyards, Pollock, and Grace Estate before joining forces once again with Michael Shapps at his Wineworks in 2015 as the head winemaker and general manager for the Custom Crush portion of Michael's business. Jake showed a lot of insight in his comments as he answered my questions and was fun to have in my studio here in Charlottesville. Take a listen. Jake, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much. This is uh, pretty exciting. I, I, I don't often get the chance to go through the whole backlog. This will be pretty interesting. Well, wonderful. That's what I'm hoping for. So, as I like to start in the beginning, what's your story? I understand you're from Minnesota. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Minnesota on a cattle farm. Uh, we were doing beef cows and uh, you know, 160 acres of swamp land and some and some. Herefords, and that was sort of my childhood was tractors and dirt. And, um, you know, I ran away from that as farm boys will do and found myself getting into tech, uh, fiber optics, and then music technology. And that sort of led me on a trail of becoming a musician. I was in band and I was in Minnesota and it was cold and dark. And we decided to throw a dart and ended up in Richmond, Virginia. Oh my God. What'd you play in the band? I was singing uh, at the time. And um, it, it was a just a punk band lost in the world, you know, as you do as youth. But uh, I got to I got to Virginia and uh, spent some time in Richmond, and I got into the food industry. So I started bartending, and and that's where I sort of bumped into wine initially. I met a girl. We ended up in Charlottesville, so she could get masters of you know up at Stanton, and Charlottesville seemed like a good town to be in. There is where I met Stanley Woodward, who owns Jefferson Vineyards. And I was working in a rug shop, and Stanley used to come in every afternoon to have tea with the owner. And I got to know Stanley. Just one day, he said, hey, I really like the way you work. You interested in working on a farm? And I was like, I got those skills. Sure. (laughs) And that's kind of how I ended up out of Jefferson, and that was 1997. Wow, let me think about that. Doing the math, that's 24 years ago. Wow. Yeah, my knees my knees will tell the story. Yeah. So what did you do at Jefferson? And I assume Michael Shafts was there at, the, at that time. He was. Um, I got hired on to be the estate manager. So we had 400 acres of property, and I was cutting hay and taking care of cows and buildings and painting. And the fun part about this story for me is that Chris Hill was there. Oh, well. that's right. That's okay. So... Uh, Chris glommed on to me very quickly because he knew I could fix a tractor. And he's like, hey, you know, I need to get you on the vineyard side of this property. So I started managing all the equipment and working with Chris on the vineyard side of things. And so my introduction into Virginia wine was truly through the dirt, not through the wine so much. Got it. So then you, how'd you go over the Horton at that time? Well, I was at Jefferson for four years with Chris and Michael. And so that's where 
you know, the wine industry really bit me and I bit back and I could kind of see the trajectory of where things are going and talking with Michael and talking with Chris about all this development that was happening. You know, the, you know, things were starting to pop off in the industry and there were some, some big, big estates coming online. And then I had the opportunity to go, I got a call from Horton and, uh, it was an opportunity to go to a big operation and really get totally immersed in wine and, because at that time at Jefferson, I was still the estate manager, so I was still doing a billion different things, and I really wanted to focus. And Horton was a great place to bring that focus to bear. Well, I, I was thinking about that yesterday when I was going through your history a bit more and realized, man, that must have been really interesting with, with Dennis Horton there. And in kind of the, not the beginning days, but yeah, kind of the beginning days. It was, you know, at that, that time, I, I lucked into the industry when quality be started to become a focus. So at that time you'd say, well, who were the best winemakers in Virginia? And there was five, <laughs> you know, there was, a, it was a short list and you've already talked to all of them, <laughs> and, uh, but working with the Hortons, I actually shifted into the vineyard immediately. I met Dennis, Dennis one time, and then I was out in the field with Sharon Okay, and working a hundred acres uh, with Sharon was fantastic. She taught me a lot really fast and I was only there briefly uh, but that's also the first time I got my feet on Hanalee Vineyards when they had it and they planted that whole thing and, and I got to, to manage it for a winter before I got the call from Keswick Vineyards and that was an opportunity that because it was new, they were just planting, I got in on the ground floor of a brand new operation that looked like it was going to be you know something pretty serious. So I jumped over to Keswick. Well, and that was a Chris Hill project as well was it not or not yeah, in the beginning back then in albemarle it was everything was a chris hill michael shaps project yeah okay and so the you know they i was the tractor guy so you know it was like we were the triumvirate for a while they were just like all right well let's you know we need someone to do this call jake so i kind of bounced a little bit and it was with them you know i brought michael into keswick chris brought me into keswick and then i brought michael into keswick and so michael started teaching me winemaking really you know back in the keswick days um, and that's, but vineyard was still definitely my focus. And, and we put in, oh, I don't know, 25, 30 acres of vines for, for Al at, at Keswick at that time. And I was there from 2000 to 2003. Interesting. So then you, you well, then you jumped to Pollock, which is another Chris Hill project. Was, that was, and that was, um, and that was, you know, as a, as a, Vineyard guy, I was learning so much about the state and, you know, the potential for wine in Virginia and finding out where that wine was being grown. What was the, you know, what was the, the terroir that, you know, these people were looking for to make great wine. And it was an opportunity to, for me to jump up 500 feet in elevation onto, you know, the Blue Ridge and, and take a crack at making some serious reds in a, in a different terroir. And, you know, and Pollock was unplanted. It was just an open field when I took it over in, in 03 and we started planting and, and uh, I was there from 03 to 2010. So I was really, that's where I learned the breadth of the industry from the dirt, planting all the vineyards, bringing the crop online, building a winery, managing a winery, becoming a general manager. That whole thing happened under Dave and Margot at Pollock and it was an experience that I 
I just couldn't replace it with anything. Um, Dave was fantastic. He had knowledge, um, right. you know, back in Carneros and so he kind of knew what he wanted to accomplish and, and, um, uh, they were great. They, they, uh, supported me and just kind of let it, let me roll with it. And Michael was there for that too. He, he was our wine consultant when we got the winery open and Chris was our vineyard consultant until I kind of ran, you know, he was just showing up to go fishing in the pond at one point. <laughs> and like, uh, this is working. <laughs> and then you went to Grace Estate, which to be honest with you, I'm not familiar with it at all. Where is that? Uh, Grace Estate is actually the winery portion on top of an, uh, of an estate called Mount Juliet. Oh, so out in Whitehall, next to Crozet, um, Jose Morihone planted that vineyard for Dennis Horton back in 98. And it was 50 acres. It was a big, big production vineyard. Chris was involved with that vineyard from the day, you know, from the first day. And, you know, that vineyard has probably produced more gold medal wines in, in Virginia than any other vineyard out there. Just because it was a large commercial vineyard that was well managed for years, that sold great grapes to everybody. Okay. And so, um, when Jose sold it, John Grace bought it out of, out of New York and just kind of kept kept running it. And then they offered me that position in 2010. And again, that was going from a 25 acre wine estate to a 50, 60 acre development. So it was moving from small production to something more commercial. And again, an opportunity for me to deep dive on a new terroir and new varietals. And, you know, it was a real expansion for my career to be there, too. Wow, that sounds interesting. Really interesting. So ultimately, you connect back with Michael Shaps in 2015? Yeah, I think, he, I think it was 14 when he called me and okay. he said, hey, my winemaker's leaving. And he was just kind of calling to grumble about it because <laughs> we were, you know, we're, we've been tight forever. And he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I was like, well, that was Ben Jordan. Yeah, it was Ben Jordan. And, and you know, and I'd help Michael bring Ben Jordan in to, back to Virginia. <laughs> and it was it was one of those moments where I was like, well, this is how about me? And and Michael's like, really? So we started talking about it. And and uh, it just at the time, it you know, it, it really fit what I was trying to do. And so I went from this commercial vineyard operation with a small winery to Michael Schaap's Wineworks and becoming head winemaker for Michael. I instantly had 20 clients. We had three, 400 acres of vines across the state. And it was just, it was a, you know, constant fireballs of activity in the winery, making 380 different wines for, all these different people and trying to craft wines in a way that represent the dirt they came from. You know, Michael has an amazing business there and, and what he's able to pull off is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. No question about that. So you also started your first vintage of your own wine at that time too. Yeah, we had, um, we had a deal. Michael allowed me to make some wine of my own just as a, you know, as an expression. And I, I never really thought about having my own label until he's like, Hey, do what you want. And I said, okay. And uh, we had a vineyard that produced some amazing Cab Franc that year. And I was able to get my hands on it. Yeah. Where is Grape Long Vineyard? Cause Grape I, Long vineyard. where is, is that? It's South Charlottesville, about 25 minutes. Uh, it's on a little bluff above the Rockfish river. 
right where Highway 6 crosses uh, or crosses onto Route 29 in Nelson County. Does it exist today? Oh, yeah. It was planted by Phil Ponton and Carl Tinder. Okay. Uh, Phil used to be at Oakencroft, and it was planted for use at Oakencroft originally. Um, so that vineyard's been there since the early 2000s. It was well produced. It was a good year. Uh, 15 was a great growing season. So I just kind of started building building a vintage from there. And uh, that was also the first year I was able to get some grapes off of Hanalee. Man, uh, that place is in, just as a vineyard, it's one of the, my favorite vineyard sites in the state. Well, I keep, you know, Michael's chefs waxes so poetically about that vineyard that, you know, yeah. everybody understands how significant that vineyard is and the quality of the grapes yeah. coming from it right oh yeah and as a vineyard person if you drive into that place you drive in at 400 feet and then you drive up to a thousand and there's just vineyard from 500 feet up and it's i think they're up to about 40 acres now and it's it's just a beautiful site and so when dennis horton planted that place he tried planting every varietal he could get his hands on. <laughs> That's where he brought Viognier in. He brought, he had everything in there. And so when Michael got the lease on it, so when I was with Michael, I was his lead winemaker in 2015. And then we kind of identified a problem with sourcing. A lot of the grapes that were coming in just weren't up to quality. And so Michael and I got our heads together and said, well, why don't we start consulting back to these clients and actually help them with their vineyards so that they're bringing us good fruit so that we're making better wine. And so I transitioned out the door into the field because that's my expertise. And then that's when Joy Ting followed me in as lead winemaker for Michael. And Joy and I were making, you know, we were working together on to make all these wines, but I was the vineyard guy. I got it. And so that's how I got to know all these crazy vineyards. And uh, But we went into Honolulu with that lease, and we pulled out a bunch of stuff that just wasn't working and started replacing it with things that were tried and true, and, and we knew we could do really well there. To not? It had to not, and we put in more. We pulled out uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Italian varietals that people try here that just don't seem to hang real well. Uh, we pulled those out and replaced them with things like Merlot, where there's we know we have a shortage of Merlot in Virginia. It's a great varietal for Virginia, and so we were trying to build that up. We put some Cab Franc in there, you know, things that uh, Michael uses for his own label as well. Right, exactly. Uh, Tanat and Petit Bordeaux at uh, at Honolulu are, are those are special creatures. So, were you involved initially at Hark when they bought the property, and were you part of that whole development from the beginning? I was. Um, at the time, uh, Chris Hill was the uh, sort of the viticulture teacher at Piedmont Community College here in Charlottesville. Okay. And uh, he got sick of doing it, and he called me one day. His back had blown out. He's like, Jake, I need you to go teach this class. And I never taught class before. <laughs> so I rolled in there and, and taught a class on a Saturday, and then he just asked me to take it over. So I started teaching basic viticulture for the community college. And that's how I started meeting all these different people in the industry outside of Michael's. And so the Harks were students of mine. At, I met them at the college, and Aaron Hark and I totally hit it off. We had a very mutual respect and, and kind of knew where he was going with his project. So I was on the ground for that right after they purchased it and uh, development from day one. So I was accurate. You've managed the vineyard. You make the wine for them as well as 
producing your own wine there as well. Absolutely. Um, we planted that vineyard. Our first leaf was 2016. And, you know, they uh, they relied on me and my, my knowledge to, to put the vineyard in the way it needed to be, um, to develop the property the way that it, that it needed to be. They've been absolutely fantastic. The wines are great. And we are just now getting to the phase where we're building a, a big tasting room and um, going for it. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, you're the right guy to ask this question, given all your background and vineyard and everything. What varietal do you like to not only grow, but also that you enjoy making wine from? If there's one that you think, yeah, that's one I always want to make wine from. Yeah, you've got a bottle right in front of you there. Uh, Cabernet Franc. Cabernet Franc is the grape for Virginia. It's Once you understand it in the vineyard, it is the most reliable red grape we have year to year. Uh, it's predictable. I can predict what it's going to do in the vineyard. I, I know how the vines are going to grow. I know what I'm going to get in the winery as long as my brain is in the vineyard with it. We know how to grow Cab Franc here to get us past the issues we've had with it in the past. So I'm curious then because I've been myself going and buying a lot more Chinon these days, trying to get an understanding. What do you see are the differences from front that's being made, let's just say, in central Virginia, Monticelli AVA, and up in the Shenandoah Valley? Uh, I should have brought you my 2017 a vintage of Cab Franc because it was from the Shenandoah Valley. So what is the character? If there are differences, I'm curious. Oh, absolutely. If you think about the, the, the differences in climate, but also the differences in soil down here, we're on top of bluestone and greenstone, and it's this deep red clay. You get up in the valley, you're on top of limestone, and you get all this. It's a totally different creature. And not only that, but you've got a shorter growing season up there. It's cooler. Totally different world for grapes. And... Everything up there, from, you know, when I'm describing a wine, the tightness of those wines, the, you know, the down here, it's it's hotter. We got more, typically more rainfall than the valley gets. Uh, but it's it's that heat and water where you get this big lush canopy and all this energy. And the vine, balancing vines down here is harder than it is in the valley. Different root systems. It's, um, but it's all about water. It's, Chris would tell you. Yeah, exactly. Remember, That's sure. their water. Yeah, no, it is. And um, so in the valley, at that elevation, you, you've got a shorter ripening window and you have a, a different ripening intensity. So your phenolics are all different in your skins. Your tannins are different. The rate of development is totally different. So if you can get a Cap Franc ripe in the Shenandoah Valley, you get this pin cherry, really you know, tight full of energy wine that needs some time to release. Whereas, you know, down here in the Piedmont, it's a little more sort of open structurally. You get, you know, deeper tannins. It's granola and and strawberry. It's not necessarily this tight, you know, cherry, pin cherry thing you get in the valley. So I'm curious about your take and your thoughts about the future of hybrids here in Virginia uh, admittedly, as I've told people, I had very little understanding of what they were. I was probably as ignorant as anybody about them. It comes from the West Coast in this business, and I had different versions. But when I've come here and tasted some of these wines, especially Saval Blanc, which I've become a real big fan of when correctly made, it's like, hold on here a second. Why are hybrids getting such a knock? Um, I, I think it's partly due to the... the 
the wine geek that's out there knocking on hybrids. Like these are American made grapes that do well in swamps and lowlands. And, you know, and the reality is, you know, in the past, the hybrids have become workhorse grapes for wineries that need to produce table wine. And so they don't give them their due in the vineyard. They overcrop them. They don't ripen them the way they need to. And then they make sort of big tanks of ineffectual wine in the winery because they're trying to cut costs with that grape. They're trying to produce a table wine for 15 bucks instead of a $25, you know, um, varietal wine. I think hybrids are a key to the future of our industry in Virginia. Um, I plug them in wherever they should be. And so as a consultant now, when I talk to somebody, you know, and if they have a site where they're dead set on planting Chardonnay and I know it's not going to grow there, I have to have something to say, let's put this white grape in there and pay it, pay attention to it and it actually make something great. And Chardonnay, for instance, great grape for Virginia in the right spot. And, you know, sitting down with a well-made bottle of Chardonnay, uh, Ben Jordan, if he would make those wines with some oysters, it's just one of the best things ever. Well, thank you for saying that because I'm still trying to get a bottle of Chardonnay. I'm so, I'm so <laughs> interested. In fact, when I interviewed Jay Yeomans, he told me about Chardonnay. He said, Fred, I've had some Chardonnays that are as good as Premier Cru Chablis. Yeah, absolutely. The acidity there is bracing. Uh, I, I love growing it. It's a you know it's a big grape, big cluster, but it comes in a little early. It's fairly resistant to a lot of the stuff that growing Chardonnay in Virginia is a pain. It, it's it just wants to have all the problems, and so <laughs> we're fighting it constantly in the vineyard where Chardonnay is a little more resistant. Wineries like the Hague out on the Eastern Shore, Fifty uh, Third, right here in, in Savannah, they've got Chardonnay. And I'm pretty sure we started making Chardonnay for the Haggett Shaps. And um, I tweaked it with some Lees edition. Uh, so we were doing Chardonnay and Barrel with some Chardonnay. Sounds Lees. interesting. Gives it a little more volume in the mid palate, so it's not quite so severe. Beautiful wines. Really beautiful wines. Oh. Well, I'm going to have to check out the 53rd because that's close enough that I probably can get my hands on some. Absolutely. It's I mean, there. most of the producers I've seen, like Rosemont or somebody who has Chardonnay, they reserve it for their wine club members. Yep. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I have a resistance to become a wine club member. At this age too many. Anybody. There's too many. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really want to try a really good Chardonnay. How involved, if you've been at all, of course, you're on the vineyard side mostly, but I'm really curious about something here that I just recently picked up on. You know, people had mentioned it to me. I'm talking about the Winemakers Exchange Research. Sure. Research Winemakers Exchange Research. People have mentioned it, but I kind of went over my head until recently, and then I all of a sudden said, hold on here a second, this is a really big deal. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what's behind that, and are you involved at all? I am involved in that. I was at the table at the original conversation with Matthew and Emily and Kirsty, and, and I think that was maybe the four, and there was maybe somebody else there. Um, and we started talking about the history of collaboration. Virginia Tech, Bruce Zocklin at Virginia Tech used to do roundtables for all the regions through the state. So he'd say, hey, I'm going to be in your region. We're going to meet at Whitehall Vineyards. Everybody bring some wine blind that you're having trouble with or that you want to talk about. We're going to blind it. Everyone's going to talk. You know, there's going to be 15 winemakers sitting around the table. We're going to taste this stuff and learn something. 
And when we lost that, it was crucial to my development as a palate, but also as a winemaker. To I mean, you're, you're out working every day by yourself in, in the field in the middle of nowhere. How do you get this information? And to have your, have your colleagues just sitting around a table talking about what you're doing, it, it's just this collective energy that, that I learned so much from and I think is really important to a, an industry to sort of grow together. And we lost that when, when we lost Bruce, when he retired from Virginia Tech, it just went away. And so we were, we were discussing as the Monticello Wine Trail, how do, we, how do we do this ourselves? That's how that conversation started. Okay, great. And so then we were like, well, we can do this, but is there, what's, the, what's the goal? What's the, what's the end point? It's like, well, we all want to do these trials and things, but how do we make it legit? And so that's when... Kirsty and Emily, and then eventually Joy Ting came on board. They were the science geeks. I was just a dirt guy. <laughs> and they're like, well, we need to, everything needs to be justified and we need to have a process. And I was like, okay, let's do that. And then I went back to work and they all put this thing together. But it has really become a, a wonderful part of the industry. We started it in the Monticello Wine Trail. We did so well with it as a trail that the state stepped in and said, hey, we'd like to have that. So we just moved it statewide, and now it's run by Joy Tang and the Virginia Wine Board. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, that points to something I've noticed here. There just seems to be a real collegiality and a lot of collaboration going on here in Virginia, for the most part, between all the vintners. Absolutely. I've One of my favorite things is collaborating with, with my colleagues. Back in 2009, Mathieu Finot at King Family, Emily over at, at, at uh, Veritas and myself, when I was at Pollock, we started one of the first collaborations in Virginia wine, and we had a product called Three. It's three winemakers, three wines. We would each bring a barrel of something, and we'd do a blend. And so it was usually Merlot, Cap Franc, and Petit Verdot. We did that for about five years. And um, when I when I left Grace Estate, I sort of lost the ability to do that wine anymore. It kind of stayed with the estate, and so it just kind of ended there. But doing these collaborations again, it's a learning thing, but it's also the kind of thing that that puts us politically in touch with what's going on in the state. You know, the governor would show up to these releases of our three wine because it was making a statement about this new industry and how everyone was working together. I just, I absolutely love doing stuff like that. Well, that sounds fantastic. All right. Question I always like to ask everybody. What was that one wine that you had in your lifetime at whatever juncture you said, ah, that's it. And that was that one wine you always remember. My answer there is I haven't had it yet. Okay. However, <laughs> um, I got a bottle of my cellar. It might change that, but go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, no. And that's my problem. Like, Every wine that I have that, that tells me something about itself in a unique way, I find it thrilling. Like, I really, I love wine. And I love, I think, coming at wine from the production side. And I, I talk to my enology friends who are just enophiles that drink wine and believe all the magic and the unicorn stuff. Coming at it from the other perspective of, of tasting, you know, what's behind the wine, whether it's the hand of the winemaker or a specific barrel or the dirt, it, it changes your, your relationship with wine. But really answering that question, it was a bottle of some weird Chianti that I bought at a 7-Eleven in like 1993. Okay. And I grew up 
around alcohol. There was always whiskey in my house. There was beer. There was never wine. And so I didn't know wine until I got into the restaurant world. And then I was sort of like, what is this stuff? I never liked beer. I, I think whiskey's great, but <laughs> the first time I had a bottle of wine, I just, I was thirsty. I bought it at Seven Eleven, and I pulled the cork and I was like, this makes sense to me. There was something about it. And from that moment on, I was more interested in wine and that sort of, and that led me to focus a little harder on it when I was bartending and when I was working in restaurants and then it just eventually, you know, leading up to the point where I found myself on an estate that grew it and I was hooked. Well, that's just a great like story. That. Come on, Jake. That's a great story. I like that story a lot. Are you kidding me? It reminds me and I won't digress, but it reminds me how I got introduced to wine, you know, and I, I will say this it, to, to your point it wasn't the most stellar bottle of wine. It was a bottle of 69 vintage Seychelle Shipper Omidoc <laughs> off a shelf at Jewel Osco in Western Michigan. And I was like, to your point, wow, this does make sense. With there, this is all different. Yeah, that's a big deal. When you're, when you're thinking about food and you find something that actually pairs with it instead of just washes it down. That's that you know just expands the meal out. It's a much more interesting experience, I think. Uh, you brought up something I wanted to touch on too, because the importance of Bruce Auckland, I can understand. So let's fold Tony Wolf into this now as well. Uh, what type of support have you enjoyed over the years from Tony, the extension services, that that whole group? It's taught me most of what I know about the technical side of what I do. And I have Tony's cell number. We talk a lot. Um, I'm involved with a lot of projects with Virginia Tech, and I always will be and always have been. I think that what they do for our industry is invaluable. It's, it's in, it, they have changed grape growing, and they listen to us. They, you know, I serve on a committee for the wine board that we lot out the, we review and lot out the, the money for, for extension, we we're the people that decide what you know. Where's where's where should we put this money? And all of the, the projects coming out of Virginia Tech, you know, we fund all that. And seeing you know all of this stuff and being involved in that, it's changed our industry completely. You know, what we knew about growing grapes when I started was pretty limited. And I like to just point this out to people: is like, hey, Napa Valley gets sixteen to nineteen inches of rain a year in the winter. We get forty. All summer, you know, and it's so growing grapes here is the problem with the industry. It's hard to do and it's hard to do well because our climate is so vintage driven. You know, did the hurricanes hit? Did we get frosted? Did, was there a drought? You know, all these questions, but tech has been there to answer those questions and to guide us through all this craziness that we, that we face all the time. We have new insects that roll in here about every five years that we've got to deal with and figure out and, it's been it's it's been a, a, an amazing amazing part of the industry to be a part of. I was doing some research the other day, looking specifically for something like this, and I stumbled on something. I believe I understand why it never got legs, but I'd love your take on this because you were here at the time. This thing called the Commonwealth Quality Alliance Program, which was a program to taste wine and give it a quality assurance from the state. To me, it was a laudable approach to trying to give Virginia a stamp as a new wine region back in, what, 2012, 2011, like that. 
do you were you sort of around at that time and do you remember what happened there? I'm curious. Not only was I around at the time I was on that committee. Oh, good. Um, well, I got the right guy here. Emily and I were on that committee. Uh, Jordan, and I, I forget who else. There was a bunch. There was a bunch of us on that committee, and we tried really hard to to make that a go. And the the thing we bumped into is ego. Um, right. You're still in cowboy country, really. I mean, you talk about California being cowboy country, but it's the same here. It's just a different hat. Uh, you know, you have all these estate owners and and the folks that come in with the money. They do not want to be told what to do. And a lot of the, the smaller producers either can't afford that kind of lab work and that, you know, all the labeling that goes with something like this. It's, a, it's an expense. It's a bit of a, a hurdle for a lot of people to include it in their program when you start talking about the business model that is Virginia wine and who's making money and who isn't. And so if you're essentially adding a tax for quality, there, there's an immediate kickback. Like, nope, no thank you. My wine's good. My mom said it was. Okay, I got you. <laughs> I, I understand. I've seen this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand. But, boy, what a great idea. I mean, exactly for lifting everybody's boat in Absolutely. this situation. Uh, you know, I have my own opinion about why Virginia is not recognized on a national level for what's going on here. And I'm trying to change it. That's been my goal for obvious reasons. But I'm curious, from your perspective now, what do you think needs to happen next for Virginia to finally, where the consumer starts to understand on a national basis, hold on here a second, I want to see Virginia wine just like I default to Oregon wine or California wine or even Washington State wine. Sure. Uh, I think some of it is just scalability. And availability. Um, if you think about, uh, I think California, the industry in California contributes about 30% of alcohol sales in the state. Here in Virginia, it's less than five. Right. So our local constituency is drinking all the wine we can produce. And so it's really hard for us to say, well, let's put a whole bunch of money behind a wholesale deal where you're not going to make as much wine on the much money on this wine. We're going to wholesale it out to somebody in Oklahoma when I can have a full retail dollar from somebody who drives up my driveway. And I think it, we don't have the largest States. We don't have the terroir where we can just plant a whole Valley full of grapes because of our problems with cold and water. There's small blocks, you know, it's 20 acres and 10 acres and five. I'm planting a vineyard next spring. That's, two acres, but it is a perfect vineyard site that I've been looking for for years. Huh. And, but, it, but it's that kind of dynamic on the business side of things where I think we're a long ways off from having a large national footprint. Well, the one thing that could change that as we move forward, the consumer has learned all of a sudden because of COVID to buy a great deal of wine online where they didn't before. And the other phenomena that I've watched happen is something I never thought would happen people are buying wine what i call sight untasted online absolutely whereas before they wouldn't before it was like they bought wine online because they've been to the winery or they know the wine or it's their favorite brand now they're really experimenting and i think that's an opportunity marketed correctly and i have my own ideas on how to do that great opportunity for virginia because every time i get a trade person around the country or a consumer to try a bottle of 
Virginia Cabernet Franc or Petit Mansang, they're like, wow, I had no idea. And then this idea that somehow Virginia wine is too expensive goes away because vis-a-vis quality, it is not too expensive. It's not. It's right there. And, and I totally agree with you, Fred. I think you know the online sales mechanism that kicked in for all of us sort of changed our perspective on marketing and the use of social media and websites and you know, get it out there, talk to people. And we are selling Virginia wine outside of Virginia. There's, and that's how we're doing it. People, you know, I, I ship wine to Minnesota. I ship wine to Texas. There's, there's wine going out the door to people who know. So how do you, you know, how do you promote that and get some more sales outside of the state? I think you're absolutely right. There's an avenue there where we can tap into the enophiles that want to find these great wines in Virginia that, they're the same people that live in Mississippi that want to drink Oregon Pinot and they're ordering it from somebody. How do we get into the wine shops that are going to hand sell it to somebody at a tasting? That's the, that's the tough part. And, and having the volume to back that, that's not as hard as, as having a wholesaler out selling for you because wholesalers, you know, they, they, they have their place in the market, but for Virginia wine, it just doesn't work for us financially to have, if, a, if I only make 3000 cases of wine a year, it's so hard to give that right that percentage up. Yeah, no, I can totally understand. Let's talk about your brand. So talk to me about the label, the packaging. I'm curious. I, I'm looking at this going, okay, what does this uh, represent? I, I like to have people guess, but um, I'll just tell you. Um, that is a an iPhone picture of Petit Bordeaux wine running down the side of a press barrel. Oh, okay. So we're, we're pressing the wine, and the and the barrel's rotating on the press, and I was just standing there taking pictures of this amazing series of rivulets of Petit Verdot coming down the side of this press. And and then I handed that off to a designer, and she did all the, the artful work. There. Right. And we changed the tone, but that's just a photograph of wine. Um, as, a, as an independent producer who doesn't have an estate, so let's back up one step. My label is about sourcing grapes from great vineyards and wineries that I know and work with that I want to make wine from. So if I can roll into somebody's vineyard and say, hey, I really, you know, I love this vineyard site. I, I know you're a good good operator or I work with them as a consultant and I say, I, I just want one ton of that block right there to make my wine from. That's that's what I'm doing cool. to make my brand. Cool. And so I don't have an estate, so I didn't have a picture of a building or a mountain. An artful expression of wine seemed apt. So the branding on this wine, F8? F8. What's yes. that all about? That's a field designation. Uh, field 8 at Honolulu is where those grapes came from. Oh. And me being my practical farmer, dirt self guy, I went to... Uh, Darcy, who was doing the label, and I said, I want to call this F8. It's a field designation. And she said, oh, fate is brilliant. That's a really good idea. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but uh, that wine, um, those those grapes grow side by side in field eight at uh, Hanalee. Um, I, produced that, I produced two vintages of that. I had the 15, three, the 15, 16, and 17. Uh, and it all came off. It was the same grapes uh, each year. You know, a really fun project. F8 is fate, folks. You got to call it fate. <laughs> now I understand. Well, no, now I understand. I mean, there there's a story behind every label. And it's important to understand it. 
that's the beautiful thing about wine. It's the intellectual curiosity that drives people wanting to know what's behind this package, who's behind this wine. That's what makes it special. It's really fun to share that story with people and to have people. And, I, and I've experienced this as head winemaker for a bunch of places, especially at Pollock is where I, I learned it initially was how customers love to be included and take ownership of, of part of the process, like being involved. And they feel, you know, like suddenly you've got a community of whether it's the wine club or not, you have a community of customers that are super loyal, who know everything about you and your wine and, you know, and you become friends with these people. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I love it. It's a, it's a nice social uh, network. Are your wines served at Hark at the tasting room as well, or is it just Hark? Uh, no. So my labels, it's available on the website and in the tasting room at Hark. And uh, there's a few restaurants in town that carry my label as well. Um, pretty good friends with Will Ritchie. And so his he likes to have... <laughs> That cab front, for instance, is at two of his establishments in town. Okay. So it's I leak it out a little bit. I only make between five and 700 cases a year if we get a good vintage. So there's not a lot of it. And I'm kind of camped on it because I want it to age a little bit in bottle before I release it. So uh, primarily it's available at Hark uh, at, in the tasting room there. Well, Jake, this is fascinating. <laughs> this just, is fun. <laughs> I know. Thank you. I mean... It's important to have your story. You've been here in the middle of all this as we see this modern-day growth of quality in the wine growing, and you understand that. As I always tell people, it's farming, folks. It's absolute farming. I still have the calluses to prove it. It is just farming. I mean, at the end of the day, the farmer, the way he makes his money is when he sells the farm. (laughs) That's true. And that's the wine business itself for the most part. You know, it's when they sell the brand. That the money comes home. Absolutely. So, well, I want to thank you for your time. This is great. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. I love the history of Virginia wine. I've been an advocate for Virginia wine for a long time, and um, it's been wonderful to to be able to work with an entire state and be involved in an industry like this. All right. Okay, folks, as you can see from my interview with Jake and the many podcast episodes that have preceded it, there are a significant number of talented wine growers who have been instrumental in Virginia's success to consistently produce world-quality wines, and Jake has certainly made his contribution. Speaking of talented individuals, that is an excellent segue to introduce Joy Ting, who I interviewed in my next podcast episode number 25. Joy is currently the coordinator of the Virginia Winemakers Research Exchange. She initially achieved a degree in marine biology, not a background that usually leads to the wine industry. However, she has made a significant contribution and she details her career path that led her into wine growing. Stay tuned for that episode. And as always, thank you for being a listener. If you have any comments or questions, please send them to me at Fred at finewineconfidential.com. See you on the other side. Music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. 
from his copyrighted song, Acoustic Shuffle, under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>